You are listening to the second episode of 1066 Wasn't All That, an independent podcast about new research in history and related fields. I'm Victoria Stiles, and today I'm joined by Robbie Rudge, a PhD student in history at the University of Nottingham. Say hello, Robbie. Hello, Vicky. Thank you very much for coming along to tell us about your research. Um, could you kick us off with a bit of easy background on the topic? Mm-hmm. Certainly. Yes, thank you for having me on. So my topic is a history of the defeated royalist supporters following the British Civil Wars. So for your easy background, the potted history here, you have the first civil war, sort of known as the English Civil War, although there is a, a debate there now over whether we call it English or British Civil Wars, that culminates really with the end of the Royalist cause in England at the Battle of Naseby, and then the months and almost up to a year that follows after that, where the final battles are being fought and the king um, eventually is taken into custody, really, when he hands himself over just up the road from here at Newark. So that is the defeat of the First Civil War. So 1646, that's the starting date for my thesis. And you then get 14 years of chaos in England for these royalists where uh, the political situation degenerates quite quickly over the course of the next three years to the regicide in 1649 when Charles I is tried and executed on the 30th of January 1649 and that leads then into the period known as the interregnum when you don't have a king as part of the government of England that lasts for 11 years with successive regimes and regime changes um, until the king is invited back in May 1660. So this leaves you with the interesting question of what about those people that didn't agree with these changes? So I'm looking at these individuals, men and women with royalist sympathies. They're the people that supported the king in the first um, civil wars and may have even supported him in the second and third civil wars um, that sprung up in the aftermath of defeat. Um, what were they thinking? What were they doing? How did they cope? How did they cope with this defeat? Did they accept it? Did they want to fight against it? What were they feeling? What were they thinking? Um, all of this time looking at the impact of them and their life in England, because a lot of research has, has already been done on um, the exiled court, because when you have Charles I executed, Charles II comes to the throne, but he's living in exile uh, on the continent, and a lot of royalists follow him there. So they've been considered, but the people that remain at home, which is, must be said as the majority of royalist supporters, uh, they've not really been looked at. So that's what I am researching. Is there an explanation for why they're not looked at as much? I mean, are they considered to be not quite as staunchly loyal because they could stay at home? Or what's the thinking there? Hmm, there is there is an element of that. One of the main points is the old idea of history being written by the winners. Mm -hmm. And looking ahead, looking back with hindsight at the Restoration, the royalists are eventually the winners because the king comes back, uh, monarchy is restored. But... Ultimately, that time of exile for the exiled court, which does move between different countries, they still end up writing the narrative. So it's the exiled court and particularly um, a figure called Edward Hyde, who becomes the Earl of Clarendon at the Restoration as a, as a, a big thank you for his help to Charles II, who writes the, the history of the rebellion, which becomes quite a famous story. 
And this is that's the main narrative that looks at what royalists did. And royalists who are at home that take part in conspiracies are often held up as quite positive actors or um, good loyal sufferers, good royalists. Um, but the ones that sit at home and maybe do nothing aren't given the limelight. That's not necessarily to say that they aren't considered staunch royalists, but they just aren't given that treatment. And it's almost almost seems that at the Restoration, that kind of line isn't talked about so much because you wouldn't want to be answering the question, what did you do in the interregnum? The old sort of, what did you do in the war? <laughs> what did daddy do in the war? As I sat and wrote poems or <laughs> something else like that. Not so, not so exciting. So there is, that has a, a great deal to play with it. Also, um, from the historical point of view, because of the exiled court um, and the creation of the source material over there, particularly with the, the Clarendon papers, which are an amazing collection of sources, a lot of um, a lot of work has been based on them largely because the, of the good source material that there is for those royalists in exile. Um, it's not even exhausted yet. I mean, there's some good work happening on royalists in exile for, that, that where sources have remained in those countries. But yes, I'm looking at the ones still in England at the time. So are there any other gaps that you're hoping to fill, things that we don't know about this topic at the moment? Yes. So considering the history and what has been written on royalism so far. Royalism spent a long time being quite unfashionable. Um, it was seen as the idea, why would you ever want to look at what these unthinking conservatives are doing? There's no, there's no question there, it's all clear cut, surely. But that's just not the case. Um, royalism in defeat, I'm finding, is quite dramatically different to royalism from the Civil War period. Moving from the battlefields and away into um, coping strategies and living in defeat with the economic and physical discrimination against you. Uh, the nature of royalism for these individuals changed. You also get new royalists in the 1650s, so groups who had previously um, held moderate, neutral, maybe even pro-parliamentarian views in the actual war, who then start to uh, consider that the monarch should take part in the government of England. Also, there's generational differences as well, which is something I always find quite interesting to think about how long these wars must have carried on for, that you get a whole new generation of people that are, are growing up during these civil wars and that are now thinking for themselves and, and are taking part in these same questions. Um, do we have a king? Should a king be a part of the government? What And if so, what part? And how does that reflect to the government they had at the time? So there's definitely lots of uh, different people to go and investigate but it's mostly the big thing is what are they saying because as much as it has been unfashionable many attempts of uh, historiography for royalism have largely looked at what's happened to them what's the mechanisms that they've had to go through what's the impositions that have been made upon them or what the narrative is about conspiracy movements but what not so much on the why why are they why are they acting why what are they exactly are they thinking and the different ambiguities of royalism what sort of sources are you dealing with and, and what are you having to do with them? Mm, yes, so I'm looking at more literary sources um, for royalists in the country. So a lot of uh, letters, um, which are quite useful. Poems, that's been a, a very fruitful source base. Uh, memoirs uh, and diaries um, and the wonderful commonplace books, which are somewhere between a journal and a, and a scrapbook in some cases. But some of them can be really quite 
juicy for source material. And I'm looking at them and seeing what they've written in them about their um, political sympathies and how they are manifesting them, those those sympathies both to themselves and to other people. So it may be a nature of the source that a poem could be written for a small group of friends to be said, or a poem may be written just for your own uh, benefit, um, which I'm really fascinated by the idea that a lot of these pieces of writing are being used to help these individuals cope with the trauma that they've been through, perhaps because they've taken part in a civil war and then obviously lost or perhaps because they are looking at the political situation around them and they're just upset <laughs> with how things have turned out. These commonplace books that you mentioned they're sort of you said half diaries and half scrapbooks what are the sorts of things that they're putting in them? It depends on the person really because you have a good range of of different things so a good example would be Sir, Sir Humphrey Mildmay which is he's more his commonplace book is more of a diary um, stating what he did on which day, whether he went for a long walk. But then sometimes you'll get a little interesting comment. Um, he speaks of ill news from London on the day of the regicide, and he speaks about how he, he drank a health to the king on the king's uh, on Charles II's birthday. And then you have others such as uh, Sir John Gibson, who I'm looking at quite extensively, who writes poetry in, in there, uh, copies poems that he finds from pamphlets. He even cuts out little pictures of Charles I and Charles II and sticks them in. So it depends on what the royalist wants the commonplace book to be. And what revelations has this led you to then? It's revealed a lot about these royalists' strategies, strategies for survival, for personal survival, but also for the survival of their political sympathies. I can remember thinking that I might expect to have found quite obstinate, uh, loyal actions and royalists who are trying not to, to reintegrate themselves or to, to collaborate or to reconcile themselves to the regime. But I'm actually finding more and more that there is uh, no clear cut way of saying reconciliation. Um, it's a, a grey word with a lot of different meanings and I find that these royalists are carefully balancing their political sympathies but with partial collaboration and partial reconciliation into English society. It's not complete, it's not clear cut, it's not like saying that royalists went on a process where they changed their allegiance either or kept their allegiance for the king or against the king. Um, it's quite fluid and it can change throughout the decade many times. It is also another revelation is that defeat seems to have blurred these lines of allegiances and as I was mentioning before, it changed what royalism was. Royalism in the 1650s was probably quite different to what royalism was considered at in the 1640s. Because royalists saw themselves as royalists, but they also, there was an element of being seen by others as being a royalist too. You mentioned generational conflict a bit in this. Um, and I know that the Civil War is one of these things that really split families apart. Yes. I was wondering, to what extent does the identity of the head of the household, the, the main man in the family, determine the rest of the family's identity? And particularly women who, I guess, didn't have much of a role in the war or not a very prominent role. Well, I think the role of women as royalists is a particularly interesting thing that needs to be unpacked. And I'm trying to get into this now with my research. But to refer to the issue of the heads of the household, it can be quite an important thing for royalism in the 1650s as a strategy 
that the head of the household, if they have elder sons, that the head of the household can try and keep his head down somewhat and let a younger son act on behalf. It all goes back to what you define as royalism. Is royalism something which is in the soul, in in the heart, or is it manifested? Is it some, is it in your actions? You have a lot of cases of uh, more prominent royalists who are seen to be not acting, and you might see this as a case of not being royalist, not wanting to be a royalist. But in fact, it's their sons who are, are doing quite significant things. Um, the Earl of Hertford jumps out as a good example here, who remains quiet, which is quiet with inverted commas throughout the 1650s and yet it's his son Lord Beauchamp who um, takes the the conspiracy movement as a as as, as its head. Um, Justinian Isham as well is another one who manages to traverse these economic penalties because his father, quite an elderly man, uh, survives the regicide for a, a few months and before he passes away and passes all of his wealth to his son. On the issue of women, women royalists it is a tricky question, but there is a, a suggestion that females at this time didn't consider themselves cavalier, didn't use that terminology. And yet I'm finding many examples of uh, ladies who are almost as important for royalism in the 1650s, people who are seen as not as a, much of a threat because they are women, who are keeping letters, keeping social groups, keeping connections uh, within, with royalists at home and the exiled court. Um, a good example that springs to mind is uh, Lady Fanshawe, who helps her husband out when he gets imprisoned. And then you get some interesting little stories about how she, in an attempt to, to go abroad to the exiled court and to Charles II, gets a, a passport, a pass to travel abroad in the name of Anne Harrison and uh, changes the wording so that it could read Anne Fanshawe so she could get past the authorities on the on the ports without being seen. Little interesting stories like that. So there's certainly a big role, especially for the the covert actions and keeping keeping things alive, which is probably the most important thing for royalism in the sixteen fifties. So I want to ask you about your life as a PhD student and ask if uh, well what is it you found most difficult to deal with as you've been researching and do you have any advice for other researchers? Mm. Yes, I think the thing that I have found most difficult is that I have not had a 17th century classical education and a lot of these royalists are writing, they're not writing for me, I suppose this is a more general historical issue that the sources that people are looking at aren't written for the time that we're looking at now. But they include so many references to classical philosophy, classical history, myths, legends, uh, biblical um, references, and of course, contemporary politics, which aren't always blatant. They're not always clear. And you do wonder if sometimes you're, you're not seeing the full picture here without knowing these references. I mean, it sends me to encyclopedias and, and maybe quick Googles every now and then. I can now tell you what what a Gordian knot is or what can, can compare Mahoris to Virgil, but things I wouldn't know before. But of course, these are all the, the themes that these royalists are talking in. I think that's been one of the major difficulties for me. Quite good for pub quizzes, though. It is good for pub quizzes. I must admit, I uh, um, was watching a, a university challenge and it was talking about Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan and then a poet by Ro Robert Herrick and his influences and 
that was it was leading up to the question. I can't remember what it was, but I shouted it out and I was like, "Yes, I know it." And they the team didn't get it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but I suppose yeah, it was that's one of those few moments where you can apply it outside of your own little world um, that you live in. As for advice for other PhD researchers, I think my big piece of advice is probably to invest in a good camera. Having gone around a lot of county archives and looking through all these wonderful source materials, I couldn't have looked at as much as I have if I didn't have my camera from limits of time and money, of course, because it can be quite expensive to travel and stay at these places. But a good camera that you can take, that takes a good photo and that you can zoom in on and check that your photograph is not blurry. And then of course you've got the material for as long as you need it. You can return to it if you think you haven't quite got the meaning of a sentence. Invaluable, my trusty camera. Excellent, I found the same thing. Um, Mm. I wish somebody had told me before I started to figure out how I'm going to organize my photographs before I took too many of them. Exactly. That's 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 the other piece of advice. Have a spreadsheet at hand at the same time whilst you're taking the photographs. That's what I managed seem to do. And photograph the um, the reference, the, the, the catalogue reference of each item, what the, what the item is, if it's a letter, who it's from, who it's to, if there's a date present. Yeah, that's another important thing. You you don't want to end up with a big folder of 400 photographs and not know which one is number one. Pitfalls of the modern historian. To finish off, is there anything that you'd like to tell the world about that sadly isn't going to fit into your thesis? Sadly, this is something I come across quite often. I think because of the nature of what I'm looking at, I'm getting a lot of interesting stories and interesting tales. And especially looking at sort of uh, it's the beauty of the family collections that they have these little narratives and these little uh, anecdotes included in them especially because it's in le- in letters and memoirs and commonplace books that I find really fun it's why I'm fascinated with the 17th century really because of the source material and the reaction of people to many things you get cases where you'll have a letter sent where somebody's saying that they visited a, a relative who's on their deathbed with smallpox but person who's written the letter has said not to worry because they've wafted it in front of a fire before they sent it to make sure there was no smallpox on it. Little quirky things like that. Also I suppose though there's a few examples of parliamentarians who are turning royalist which I'm probably not going to get a good chance to look at this time round because I'm looking at my royalists and as, as I'm saying new royalists but uh, some good cases um, of people who are are changing back their allegiances and why that might be the case then I'm not getting the chance to to sink my teeth into but you never know that might be a future project there's sometimes tales where they aren't written down anywhere that you couldn't exactly think can I use this is this good enough to use a couple of cases bring to mind one of um, Arthur Jones who is a royalist in Chastleton in Stowe on the Wold who answers the call to Charles II at the Battle of Worcester and then manages a, a, an escape back to his home. He is of course pursued by soldiers who then know that something's up because there's an exhausted horse in the stables. I suppose it's the the equivalent of putting your hand on the bonnet of a car and know that it's 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 been it's been on some journey. So they start searching the house and he's hiding in an upstairs chamber when apparently his his wife has this wonderful idea that what she'll do is drug the soldiers with laudanum which is no no small drug really and 
he manages to escape with all these soldiers sleeping around and he sort of the idea is that the story goes that he's tiptoeing through these sleeping bodies these great little stories that are brilliant anecdotal evidence but probably won't make it into the thesis sadly and they do have an element of the fairy tale about them as well they do don't they? yeah yeah it's kind of a, a bit of an adventure story for a, for a roaring fire and a, and a glass of whiskey well robbie thank you very much for sharing all of that with us most welcome. If you'd like more information about the topics covered on this podcast, or if you'd like to talk about your own research or suggest a guest for us, then visit 1066podcast.blogspot.co.uk. Thank you for listening.